Yes, can, and you can hear me, right? I'm mic'd, everything sounds good. Okay, I'm not used to being mic'd, so bear with me. Um, I feel that I'm quite in stereo. <laughs> um, but I, I too wanted to thank you all for coming. Um, I have to say, I'm, I'm really delighted to be back, and it's, it's really a pleasure um, to be able to talk about a book that I um, did so much work on here, and that was so long in the making. Um, and so it's really a great privilege for me, and I'm grateful to Roger and Amaris and Eric and Carol and everyone at Hagley for uh, doing so much to support my work uh, when I feel I was uh, just a budding, a budding flower. <laughs> I'll try to keep the plant puns to a minimum for the rest of the talk, but... Um, so as Roger mentioned, I just finished uh, a book called The Prophet of the Earth, um, and I thought I might start just by telling you a little bit about how I agonized over the title, because I think it provides a nice window into some of the core concerns of the book and why I think studying agriculture is so essential um, today. Um, some of you may recognize the title as drawn from the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 5.8 and 5.9. Uh, so, and I, I will paraphrase it for you. Um, it has many different translations, and this is part of what interests me. It turns out the Hebrew is quite archaic, and so nobody really knows how to translate it. Um, so paraphrased, it's, if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, don't be surprised at such things, or don't be amazed. Uh, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over that official are others who are higher still. That's puzzling when you think about it. What does it mean? Don't be amazed or don't be surprised, uh, as in don't worry about it? Or, and is the fact that there's one official over another and another over him supposed to be a comfort because someone is taking care of the oppression that you witnessed? or because that's just the way it is. It's, it's just obscure, it's unclear. Um, so that's 5.8, and then the very next verse, 5.9, is moreover the prophet of the earth is for all, the king himself is served by the field. This does nothing to clarify the previous verse. Uh, is it just the way of the world that the king eats by virtue of the same exploitation in which we are all complicit? Or are we meant to believe that there's some system of order here that's righteous uh, and just? Um, so that was a title that I, I, I struggled over long and hard. Um, and I came to it quite late. And the title that wasn't is actually the title of my talk today, um, or at least the title that I gave it after the fact. Um, and that is The Cosmopolitan Prairie. Um, that was what I wanted to call my book. Um, but at the time I was finishing the book, I had a mentor who said, don't do that. Uh, that word is a lot of fun, but it's really going to get you in a lot of trouble. Uh, he didn't mean prairie. He meant cosmopolitan. Um, and I took him at his word because I just felt I had enough trouble at the time. But now that the book is out and I have tenure, I feel that I want to get in some trouble. Um, and, and my question then and since then has remained, well, what kind of trouble? Like, why is, why is the word cosmopolitan going to get me in trouble? Um, and so I offer it to you as a provocation um, to, to run through the talk. Uh, and, and my question since then has been, well, what are the stakes of cosmopolitanism as a vocabulary that's applied to the global, to the world? Um, what are its stakes with regard to seeds and plants and with regard to the cultures that cultivate them? 
Uh, and it seems to me we can get into this problem by thinking a little bit more about just a dictionary definition of cosmopolitanism. Um, if you just look it up in Merriam-Webster, you might get something like familiar with or at ease with many different countries and cultures. That's one definition. Uh, or including people from many different countries. Um, the third definition uh, in my quick lookup was having an exciting or glamorous character associated with travel and a mixture of cultures. Uh, so here it starts to take on a very positive uh, valence. Uh, that interests me because, as Roger mentioned, um, for my vacation I'm taking science classes, um, and in a biological context, cosmopolitan, referring to a plant or an animal, simply means something that's found all over the world. Um, and so that's a very different definition of cosmopolitanism. But when we're talking about cultivated plants, I think it gets into a really interesting gray area, um, the division between biology and culture. Um, a wild plant is one that's found over all over the world. A cultivated plant may also be found all over, all over the world, but it only exists by virtue of human intervention and human stewardship across a very long period of time. Um, and so my, my question that I want to begin with and end with in this talk is, can we say that grasslands or prairies are cosmopolitan? Um, and I'm going to explore that proposition today by telling you a little bit about the origins of hard red winter wheat in the Great Plains, which is something I talk about at length in the second part of my book. Um, before that, I just want to say a couple words about the prairie um, or grasslands as natural habitats. Um, they're home to many wildflowers. This is uh, echinacea, which you may also know as a medicinal plant. Um, many wildflowers, as well as native and introduced pasture grasses and introduced cereals. Um, and so, you know, if we're looking at such a grassland, is cosmopolitanism a useful concept to, to think about it? Okay, um, so that's my, my provocation for you. Before I dive into the story of hard red winter wheat, I did want to say just a few things more about the framing of my book, um, because uh, for this group, I, I feel good about this group, and I don't think I have to do the hard sell on the history of agriculture, but sometimes people don't seem to understand why it's of um, contemporary significance and why it's politically important. Um, for me, when I started writing the book, um, I felt that I was writing against these very Whiggish histories of growth and innovation. The idea that the U.S. made the bread, the, um, the U.S. made itself a breadbasket to the world, and this was um, simply a story of um, uh, invention and ingenuity that we should celebrate. Um, on the other hand, I felt that I was also writing against the evil empire stories that you often hear in contradiction to that very Whiggish narrative, i.e. Monsanto is the great demon. I have no stake in uh, defending Monsanto as it happens. I, I think in many ways it's a very deplorable corporation, but I think it often gets used as a proxy for a whole lot of other things. And so when I was trying to understand um, the growth of U.S. agriculture in the 19th century, I wanted to understand a bit more about knowledge production, um, which is to say that I wanted to understand how institutions of agricultural improvement, for example, the US Department of Agriculture, exploited and transformed um, biological material and knowledge about it that already existed. Um, and that's to say that when I began to look at seeds and agricultural methods with a more historical approach, 
I realized they weren't so much new as they were reconfigured over time um, and reorganized and rebranded and reclassified over time. And so I really wanted to understand that process. I, I do think it's true that the rise of capitalist monocultures in the US, especially around grain, uh, were a nail in the coffin of smallholder production. And I think the politics of that is something that's really important for us to grapple about. But I'm, I'm really interested in the process of how that happens. And so the first part of my book is about the political economy of agricultural improvement focused on the predecessor organizations to the US Department of Agriculture. The second part, which is what I wanna talk about today, is about immigrant agricultural knowledge and the ways in which everyday people uh, made powerful contributions to the growth of American agriculture. Uh, the last part, which I, I won't talk about today, um, asks a question that interests me a great deal, which is how we think about agricultural innovation with a much longer, uh, time frame. Um, so how do we think about Neolithic innovation? Um, what happens if instead of using the 20th century or the 19th century as our unit of time, we use 8,000 or 10,000 years? And how do our concepts of innovation start to change as a result of widening our historical perspective? Um, and I should just say before I move on to the, the meat of my historical narrative here, that I was very inspired in my PhD research um, by the historian Alfred Crosby, who uh, is very recently deceased, who um, wrote one of the pioneering books on the way that the global flow of seeds and plants uh, was structured by colonialism, um, uh, and uh, is most known for his concept of the Columbian Exchange. Um, and so I just wanted to acknowledge that as I, as I proceed. Um, and the book, as I say, I'm very interested in the development of US agricultural industry around cereal monocultures. Um, and I'm interested, following Crosby, in the ways those industries uh, derived from the US's uh, status as a settler colony and the production of commodity crops for export. Um, I'm also interested in the path dependency that those cereal, cereal monocultures created. Uh, and so something else I won't talk about today, but which I give you a preview of with this echinacea, echinacea plant, is the attenuation of biodiversity that results from um, growing primarily cereal monocultures. It turns out that echinacea is also a crop weed, um, and uh, it's choked out by intensive cultivation of cereals. Um, so I'm interested in these alternative plant cultures that are marginalized and in forms of knowledge that are marginalized by our dominant ideas about innovation. Um, and so as you can gather, I'm preoccupied with the growth of modern agriculture as we know it, but I'm interested in the relationship between that and this much longer agrarian history on which it relies. Um, and uh, forgive me for the kind of newly historian talk at the out, outset of the talk, but I think it really helps frame the narrative that I want to tell you. Um, as a historian, this is really a methodological problem in some ways. Uh, and I, I learned about this for the first time at Hagley. It's very easy to get a story of 20th century agricultural development, which is why we have so many of them, because breeders and agronomists leave great records. Um, they tell uh, really great uh, histories of, of their own uh, very admirable work. Um, if we back up a century to the 19th century, it's a lot harder to get at the varied commercial and immigrant heritage stories um, of the preceding century. But we still have really interesting and dense records of communities and businesses um, from those earlier periods. And, and that's a lot of the material that I was able to really delve into here at Hagley. Um, 
as I said, if we keep moving back, if we revert to these much longer timescales, things get a lot harder. Um, we have m many fewer documentary records, and some of the work that I'm doing now is about um, how we use genetic records uh, or uh, different kinds of scientific records to tell a history of um, agricultural development with an 8,000 or 10,000 year time span. Um, and so I think that there are really interesting gaps between these histories uh, that we can probe. Um, and an argument of the book, which I'm going to hang on to, is that seeds um, are not just objects of 20th century innovation or 19th century innovation. They're really deep time technologies. Um, and so that means that we can think about them as proxies for multi-generational agricultural labor that spans 8,000 years at least. Um, okay, so with that, I want to launch into my cosmopolitan prairie, or lack thereof. Um, the Great Plains, as you may know, uh, is huge. It covers three, mil three million square kilometers. Uh, it stretches from Texas to Saskatchewan, uh, from the Rocky Mountains to the forests of Missouri and Indiana and Wisconsin. Uh, the prairie consists of tall grass in the east, mixed grass in the center, and short grass in the west. Uh, as I already noted, it hosts varied flora, including numerous grasses and wildflowers that flourish in arid environments and full sun. Uh, the stiff soil cover of the prairie inhibited cultivation until the mid-19th century when steel plows and other agricultural implements aided the westward migration of Euro-American farmers. Uh, I want you to look carefully at this photo uh, because you can see um, something that is not, in fact, the natural prairie, but is a preserve. Um, and that's because uh, most of the prairie uh, now looks like this. It's a grain field. Um, so in order to recover the, the wild grass prairie of the early 19th century, we have to go to these patches of artificially preserved um, environment. Um, that said, neither large-scale grain production nor more mo excuse me, modest agricultural settlements were the first transformation of the grasslands, which had been transformed by the mid-19th century into an energy source for um, herbivores supplying a trade in horses and livestock. And here again, we have a large stuffed bison in a diorama in the Kansas Historical Society to stand in for the extinct bison. Um, in earlier centuries, grazing bison, antelope, and elk prevented extensive tree growth um, as did drought, and Native American settlers inhibited forestation through deliberate setting of fires. The historian Pekka Hemelene, someday I will pronounce this poor man's name correctly, but for now, <laughs> I'm going to pause over it again. Hemelayanin um, has examined how Comanche Indians settled in the plains and uh, adapted the environment um, that was already being transformed by European plants, animals, and microbes. Um, as they expanded their use of horses for bison hunting in the 18th and early 19th centuries, they increased their trade relationships that were based on exporting horses and hides and meat. Their turn to horsepower intensified powerfully their uses of plains grasses um, for human use. Um, and they experimented with frontier raiding and transhumance uh, and other strategies to retain this equestrian economy's grip on the plains. And in the short term, the plains grasses that had co-evolved with North American big game proved very resilient to this heavy grazing. But by the mid-19th century, this market-oriented pastoralism faltered in the face of a very concerted federal U.S. effort um, to, to remove Indians um, from the territory and to settle the American West for agriculture. So 
Uh, I often think uh, there's a kind of determinism in the way that historians write this history, and uh, one way of getting around that is to really listen to the witnesses of this transformation. Um, one is the historian Frederick Jackson Turner, who famously in 1893 um, declared that the 1890 census indicated that the frontier had closed, meaning uh, Euro-Americans had finally reached the west coast of the United States such that um, the savage wilderness that they had transformed um, by settling um, uh, there had, uh, had been eradicated by a distinctively American form of government, uh, which is democracy. Um, of course, this uh, elides the continued removal of Native Americans um, and the varied forms of uh, society and government that they displaced. Um, nevertheless, um, Turner's so-called frontier thesis remains a really important um, way of thinking about American history and Western history in the 19th century. Teddy Roosevelt uh, was very influenced by Turner's thesis. Uh, he also regarded the West as a proving ground for American nationalism uh, and also for commercial empire. Uh, he very much admired Turner's thesis. But whereas Turner looked to the future with a lot of temerity, he wasn't sure what the closing of the frontier really meant for American government, for American democracy, Roosevelt considered the winning of the West to be simply a preparation for the extension of American empire into the world. Uh, it's interesting to oppose these two perspectives, but I'll give you one more. Uh, several weeks before Turner took the podium at the American Historical Association Conference in 1893 to declare the frontier closed, the Wellesley English uh, professor, Catherine Lee Bates, <clears throat> fellow of small liberal arts college professor, um, boarded a train to teach the summer session at Colorado College. Um, she was bored on trains, which is something I can also relate to as a small liberal arts college professor. Uh, so she gazed out the window and found herself so moved by the wheat fields um, and the landscape around her that she put pen to paper and composed the opening lines of a poem called Pike's Peak. <clears throat> I, I'm curious, do people know this poem? Is it familiar? Except for Amorous. <laughs> Except for Amorous. Uh, good, this, this makes me feel self-satisfied. You will now recognize it immediately. Um, oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountains majesty above the fruited plain. Um, set to music by Samuel Ward, uh, the opening stanzas became the de facto national anthem in preference to the one that no one can actually sing. Um, and in fact, I think these lyrics are so familiar that we have long since, uh, assuming the audience is primarily American, we've long since ceased to hear them. Um, but I think they, they bear repeating and they bear some analysis um, and so I want to say them again. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, uh, for purple mountains, majesty above the fruited plain. Um, if we think about these lyrics a bit, uh, both geologic features, uh, the purple mountains, majesty, and agricultural products, the amber waves of grain, figure as permanent aspects of the landscape um, and embodiments of national patrimony. They are what makes America great, or what makes America beautiful. Um, the prosperity that she celebrated, however, represented the triumph of manifest destiny and the fruit of an agricultural empire spreading westward across the continent. Uh, and I want to focus a bit more here on the amber waves of grain, uh, because those, those waves of grain she made iconographic of the American landscape were not native to North America. Um, indeed, they weren't even 20 years old at the time she wrote the poem. 
the wheat plant itself is a transplant from Northern Europe, and the several, several varieties that made the Great Plains a breadbasket to the world were conveyed there only in the 1870s, um, reputedly by German Mennonites who were immigrating from Southern Russia uh, in what's now Eastern Ukraine and Crimea. So for all this romance of national bounty, uh, Bates's verse, and he'll, here you'll forgive, forgive the gimmick, but I think it's useful, it's sort of like celebrating American heritage and silver seas of iPhone, and why not? Uh, but it, we can think of it as a different light if we consider that it's only 20 years old. In fact, the history to which Bates referred was one of movement rather than stasis and innovation rather than tradition. And although her poetry would be put to the service of ideological narratives of civilization and progress, it obscured a much thornier history of migration and displacement and the production of knowledge and economy and um, political economy and ecology. The novelty and dynamism of the American prairie is very evident um, in some of the accounts that we read from early Mennonite scouts who traveled to the plains. Oops, got a little behind in my slides, but here you can see the wheat belt uh, where hardwood winter wheat flourishes. And here we have uh, the scout in question um, somewhat later in his life. Um, Bernard Varkenton was a very early scout to Kansas who became a prominent miller uh, there, and in his, he was very young, uh, in his early 20s uh, when he arrived, and in his journals and in his letters home, he describes enormous heaps of bison bones and uh, traversing trails that had been carved um, by the very animals uh, whose carcasses he was seeing in his travels. Um, but he also admired the carpets of wildflowers and the grassy cover of the landscape and said that it reminded him of southern Russia, where he came from. Um, so uh, I want to give you a capsule background of German Mennonites just so you understand a bit more about this community. Uh, German Mennonites had first settled in southern Russia in the late 18th century. Uh, they were courted by Catherine the Great as part of an imperial effort to colonize the Black Sea region, which you're looking at here. Uh, when Mennonites arrived, they settled among populations of Tatar pastoralists in the northern steppe, as well as among agriculturalists on the Crimean Peninsula, um, also Tatar populations, uh, part of the Crimean Khanate, uh, which at the time was a, sort of a vassal state of the Ottoman Empire. And the colonization effort was part of a long history of Russo-Turkish wars that ultimately gave Russia control over the trading ports in the Black Sea region uh, that had formerly been governed uh, by the Crimean Khanate. And the control of those Black Sea ports enabled the, export, the Russian export of grain to Europe, uh, effectively transforming the steppe into a grain depot. Uh, when Varkenton arrived in the United States in his semi-official capacity, he was one of four scouts from southern Russia seeking agricultural lands to which the German Mennonites in southern Russia could immigrate. Uh, by the mid-19th century, Mennonites were um, a bit pressed in southern Russia. They were fleeing compulsory military service from which they had formerly been exempt, uh, as well as increased state control over education and governance, um, and also land shortages due to demographic expansion within the community and uh, various internal rifts between congregations. Uh, diaspora congregations of Mennonites eventually settled across the American West, as well as uh, in Canada, Mexico, Belize, Bolivia, Paraguay, Uruguay, Brazil, and Argentina. Um, and in many of these places, they succeeded in grain production as they had in southern Russia. The larger point here is that, like the steppe, uh, the prairie was not uh, terra nullius, but rather a landscape marked by successive removals of people and animals. Um, 
In fact, the prairie trails that the new human visitors traversed had been carved by the very animals that they slaughtered. Uh, and so Varkenton and the Mennonite settlers he helped organize would make their mark by escalating the transformation of the prairie into wheat fields. Um, that said, Varkenton was one of many travelers on the, the prairie in the wake of the Civil War, uh, including many willing and unwilling migrants to the American West, Native American pastoralists, very disillusioned homesteaders, hungry squatters, and very smooth railroad agents crisscrossed the prairie in the years before Varkenton appeared uh, in the spring of 1871. In the succeeding years, Mennonites moved in very large numbers and became committed farmers, and the hard red winter wheats uh, that they carried with them were very well suited to the Great Plains. Um, this is the myth I want to focus on for, for the last part of the talk. Um, by the early 20th century, the grain that the Mennonites cultivated in Kansas, known to settlers as turkey red wheat, uh, had made the U.S. a breadbasket to the world. Um, the agronomist Cecil Salmon uh, in the mid-20th century described turkey wheat as an ancestral swamp to modern varieties uh, because all modern varieties have it in their lineage, including Norintin, uh, which is a famed semi-dwarf variety that Salmon brought back from occupied Japan in 1945 while he was traveling with MacArthur's army. More on this a bit later. Um, those semi-dwarf hybrids of wheat are credited with dramatically increasing world food production, especially on the Indian subcontinent in the 1960s. And this was part of a technology transfer uh, often now referred to as the Green Revolution, a term a lot of you have probably heard. Um, but this, this lineage interests me. If turkey red wheat provided the literal seed of the Green Revolution, through Norin 10, uh, it's virtually unknown beyond the heritage stories that I've just told you about it. It seems to me further that these heritage stories also require investigation because there's a very suspicious quality of stasis in what we know to be a history characterized by a lot of movement and instability. So the story is that Mennonites um, brought the wheat from southern Russia to the plains. And this is a story that becomes enshrined in breeding histories that are popularized um, by the likes of uh, the granddaddy of plant genetic resource conservation, Nikolai Vavilov. Um, Vavilov uh, was most active in the 1920s and built one of the largest seed banks in the world before being imprisoned under Stalin and dying in prison. Um, he remains incredibly influential in how we think about biodiversity preservation and the origins of cultivated plants. Um, and he was most important for developing a theory of the origins of cultivated plants. Um, some 50 years after the introduction of turkey wheat to the United States, Vavilov celebrated its ancient lineage using it to introduce his survey of world cereals, legumes, and flax. And here he notes that the most common variety of winter wheat in the USA, known under the name of turkey, and lately occupying up to 10 million hectares, or nearly one-third of the entire tilled area under the wheat of, of that country, represents an ancient type uh, of local Crimean wheat, Krimka, which was imported a few decades ago into the US from Crimea. Well, Okay, uh, where did Vavilov get this story? It's uh, uh, writing in Russia in the 20s. It's, uh, it's curious how he knew about this miraculous transformation of uh, plains wheat um, in the preceding uh, 50 years. In fact, Vavilov repeated the gospel of the USDA agronomist Mark Carlton, um, whose work with introduced varieties from southern Russia at the turn of the century increased their prominence um, and drew attention to their history. 
Carlton, in turn, credited the German Mennonites from the region, and Bernard Varkenton in particular, with introducing winter wheat to the Midwest in the 1870s. In 1914, 14 years after his first trip to Russia, he provided a capsule history of their migration. I'm not going to read through this whole thing, and in fact, I should have just cut out the first half, which is um, simply a, a history of um, Mennonite settlement in southern Russia. Um, the part I want to focus on is rather the, the second or the last third um, in which he credits um, Bernard Varkenton, a miller, um, as being instrumental in the introduction of turkey red wheat, um, as well as Christian Krabel, uh, who was an elder with whom Varkenton traveled, um, a Mennonite who immigrated somewhat earlier in the 1850s, um, as well as a railroad agent, C.B. Schmidt, who was also a Mennonite who acted um, to encourage Mennonite immigration in the later 19th century. Um, so Carlton's history um, in the story of origins became the primary one, repeated thereafter by numerous historians of Mennonite heritage and agronomists who were seeking the origin of these hard red winter wheats to the plains. Like any myth, uh, Carlton's is a version of history, and it's certainly better than no history of all. Uh, no history at all. Uh, Carlton admirably attempted to credit introducers of the original material uh, rather than the breeders who subsequently improved varieties or even himself. He traveled to Russia numerous times um, to collect the varieties that he saw flourishing in the plains. In attempting to attribute credit to these individual improvers, nevertheless, he compressed a long history of multi-generational agricultural labor and biological exchange such that all of the intervening history between Vavilov's ancient local Crimean varieties and the Mennonite conveyance of them to the plains in the 1870s was lost, or at least opaque. Uh, in reality, Carlton and his predecessors benefited from seeds that were locally adapted to the Crimean Peninsula and the steppe regions to the north, meaning that a facile story of them as agricultural innovators obscures the centuries of agricultural practice on which they relied. So the Tatar pastoralists in the steppe among whom they settled, as well as the Crimean Khanate and its agriculturalists on the peninsula. Um, evidence, uh, Donald Moon is writing a history of this, but uh, all evidence is that the varieties that were being cultivated on the Crimean Peninsula were brought north into the steppe and um, trained to flourish in those um, colder and more arid environments. Um, uh, but I think the more meta point here is that who counts as an originator or an introducer um, uh, or an innovator starts to look very fuzzy when we use these much longer timescales. Okay, so if I'm being a Debbie Downer and, and sort of puncturing the myth of the Mennonites as um, primary innovators um, or introducers, why then were they so important? Well, one rendition of the Mennonite story recapitulates a very cherished myth of the American dream. Um, it's a providential faith in skill and hard work and the success of willing immigrants. Um, the story of turkey red wheat distills that heritage into a single artifact uh, the seed that made the U.S. the breadbasket to the world, turkey red wheat. Um, in the stories that are told about the triumph of agriculture in the plains, the seed becomes a proxy for many unspecified factors. Uh, displacement of Native Americans, labor and social organization, agronomy, state grants and assistance, uh, railroad grants of uh, large tracts of contiguous land at preferential prices, trade networks, land quality, we could go on. Um, but I want to think a bit more about the political economic context. In reality, postbellum Kansas was made safe for capitalized homesteading in ways that were quite similar to the southwestern steppe 
annexed by Catherine in the context of the Russo-Turkish Wars. A border territory characterized by conflicts so violent, they earned the moniker Bleeding Kansas in the 1850s. Kansas's constitutional skirmishes over the legality of slavery were settled by the time the Mennonites arrived in the wake of the Civil War. The Mennonites were colonizers, and they were shock troops of a free labor economy, agents of an imperial expansion on the North American continent, as they had been in Russia a century before. Uh, settlers received means, and uh, settlers of means received grants and privileges from the state or railroad corporations. They settled among Plains Indians as they had settled among Tatar pastoralists 75 years before. And this pattern of homesteading, if we look at it in this light, is something quite a bit different from the paradise of yeoman farmers that Thomas Jefferson had imagined. Uh, rather, it was a patchwork of widowed landscapes, emptied reservations, and lands monopolized by railroad corporations. Um, Mennonites, uh, I, I, I sound as if I disapprove of them. Uh, they're actually an incredibly interesting uh, uh, community in this moment uh, and thereafter. They combine cooperative social organization uh, with a very capitalist uh, orientation. They're sort of interesting to compare to the Amish, for example. Um, nevertheless, in doing so, they depart from the, the serfdom of the steppe, as well as the plantation slavery of the American South, uh, and the land tenancy arrangements that emerge in the wake of the collapse of both systems. Private property and state grants and privileges provided the engine of agricultural development in the United States. Uh, wealth and large-scale land ownership were the primary factors that allowed for the profitable cultivation of cereals in the Midwest. Uh, the Mennonites were extremely rich and well-organized compared to the many homesteaders who traveled west uh, in search of land and livelihood, and the favorable terms they received uh, with the Santa Fe Railroad Company enabled them to farm sizable plots of uh, good land. Unlike their neighbors, they didn't remain tethered to creditors. They didn't forfeit a season's profits to pay for seeds and equipment to grow the next season's crop. So myths of national bounty, of heritage, of innovation, which remain very powerful in our ideas about American agriculture, tend to mask these political economic arrangements in part I argue, by refiguring the seed as an object of natural advantage or of cultural property or even of research and development rather than a product of labor that's shared across uh, space and time. So a, a very brief coda to this story to bring us into the 20th century. Um, as Carlton sought to attribute credits, credit to Mennonite introducers, he was also beginning to recast seeds as objects of innovation and of property uh, with varietal names that were associated with specific breeding projects. Um, and it was in this climate of standard, standardized inst um, in, in, in institutionalized research um, and in this climate of international collaboration between experiment stations um, that uh, relationships and partnerships, for example, between the Soviets and the Americans uh, uh, became very important. Carlton and others sought well-adapted seed varieties from abroad, and this deliberate exercise in internationalism masked the extent to which the prairie was already cosmopolitan. Uh, we tend to think of the 20s as a heyday of cosmopolitanism and uh, global agricultural development, but my argument is that this is a much longer history uh, meanwhile, as I've uh, intimated, the Japanese imported many of the same varieties uh, from the steppes and the plains, including turkey wheat, and one descendant of those imported varieties was Norin Ten, the, the semi-dwarf variety that Salmon collected from Japan in 1945 when he was traveling with MacArthur's army. 
at the time, Salmon was a professor of farm crops at the Kansas Agricultural Experiment Station where Carlton, Mark Carlton had worked, uh, and he was an authority on wheat cultivation in the United States. Um, ultimately, Norman Borlaug, who's the one breeder many people have actually heard of, crossed Norin 10 with a lot of Mexican varieties, uh, enabling, allegedly, world cultivation on a scale that was there too unimaginable. Um, and I think this genealogy is very interesting and, and worth uh, exploring, but the overall point is that it's a mistake to take mid-20th century stories of biological innovation uh, brought to us by um, the propaganda of the Green Revolution as self-contained. Um, and, and just as one indication of this, uh, the previous century's inhabitants had already had dreams and nightmares of scale that were associated with the transformation of the prairie into amber waves of grain. So Turner and Roosevelt and Bates, who I already uh, told you about, expressed a kind of wonder at the scale of the West and its domestication, uh, with Turner and Roosevelt ex um, also experiencing some sense of loss, <clears throat> but an ambiguous sense of loss. Um, there were other more overt critics of uh, cereal monocultures and of agricultural of scale. Uh, one of um, them, which I explore uh, in my book, is John Uri Lloyd, uh, a pharmacist um, specializing in botanic medicine, uh, who lamented the extinct extinction of uh, indigenous Materia Medica, for example, the echinacea I showed you in one of the very first slides. Um, he, uh, he felt that the transformation of the prairie into a grain depot was short-sighted and foolish. Um, and I think we can hear echoes of that in critiques of, uh, of large-scale agriculture today. There's another landscape artist for Harper's Magazine who described trying to capture the fields for a story that he was illustrating as like trying to paint the middle of an ocean in dead calm. It was just too big. Um, and I think that these nightmares of scale are uh, telling for us as uh, 21st century people as we try to think about the political economy of uh, food production as it's currently put together. Um, and this is to say that as historians as well as, um, as citizens, we should rem remain alive to dissent and qualms that we witness in the, in the midst of pervasive transformations. Um, and that we can do that not only by searching for imperiled traditions or stasis or indigeneity. Uh, so we have to look beyond this idea that there's such a thing as traditional knowledge that's being eradicated or um, that there's a heritage that's somehow static that we can see ported from place to place. Okay, and, and so this brings us full circle to this idea of the so-called cosmopolitan prairie. Um, did I get anywhere in this talk? Uh, I, I think so, and I will give you several ideas, and I'm also interested to hear yours. Uh, the first is that the Great Plains uh, is not, the history of the Great Plains is not an exceptional one. Uh, many grasslands have common histories of pastoralism and agricultural settlement uh, with commercial agricultural settlement associated with empire. Uh, so I gave you one parallel, the, the steppe of southern, southern Russia and the plains of the American Midwest. Grasslands share an ecological history with human use and settlements being simply one aspect of that history. And the Great Plains of the American Midwest are quite similar to the steppes that sweeps from Ukraine and the North Caucasus all the way to Manchuria. Um, 
This is a large area of flat, unforested grassland with a semi-arid climate, a humus-rich black soil, uh, and it was transformed in less than a century from wild grass prairie to a site of monocultural grain production. Interestingly, the southern steppe uh, faces environmental crisis in the 1890s, some 40 years before the American Dust Bowl, um, which is considered a, a, a central uh, event in American uh, environmental history and agricultural history. Uh, Donald Moon has also written powerfully about this. Americans look to Russians for lessons on how to address the consequences of transforming grasslands into, um, into pasture and arable husbandry. Um, okay, so that's, that's one way in which I think um, we can think about grasslands as cosmopolitan and it's useful and it's a much longer history than we've formerly been led to believe. Um, the second way is that um, if we look at the prairie, uh, there's nothing static about it. We see trails of people and animals on the move and the knowledge is created by those uh, beings on the move. Um, so when we start to think about innovation, uh, we can think about it as the institutionalization of that, that knowledge on the move. Um, and we can think about it as local knowledge, and I think that's a useful category, but the ways in which local knowledge is institutionalized is very uneven, and that, in fact, is the story of American innovation, the uneven institutionalization of, of local knowledge, um, and its mobility and its alteration in response to different kinds of environmental and social interactions. Um, and I think that that idea of innovation as messy and cosmopolitan and deeply connected to local histories is, is important and that it's a more useful way of thinking about uh, the world than capitulating to uh, romances of endangerment and of a lost, lost tradition. Uh, I think especially in critiques of agriculture, there's a, a tendency to nostalgia, which I, I don't find to be productive. Um, so those are two kind of powerful arguments for cosmopolitanism as a way of thinking about grasslands, as a way of thinking about the prairie and its transformation. Um, but why is it gonna get me in trouble? You can give me more ideas in the Q&A, uh, but maybe another way of thinking about that is um, we know that the vocabulary of cosmopolitanism is very tricky when it comes to people, but what about plants? Uh, um, in a biological context, as I said, cosmopolitanism is just a plant or animal that's found all over the world. Um, it's in reference to the movement of people that it begins to acquire these very disputed connotations of worldliness, urbanity, multiculturalism that are associated with different kinds of claims to the international or the global. Um, what's the danger there? Well, this idea of cosmopolitanism may flatten different power relations, um, and it often tends to privilege the actors who have the most capital. Uh, it casts cities as melting pots or multicultural utopias rather than as sites of conflict and inequality. Uh, in the context of this history, it may obscure the push and pull factors that are associated with migration, uh, and it may elide questions of consent. Uh, who's a willing versus an unwilling migrant in this context? Um, I think that those are uh, powerful critiques when we think about the history of uh, immigration, um, which we're often trained in US history to think of as a story of the American dream and uh, a faith in providence and hard work. 
Um, but could we not ask the same questions about plants, and especially cultivated plants, um, i.e. agriculture? And this is really an argument for putting the culture back in agriculture. Uh, and this means asking what work terms like native or indigenous uh, or endemic or cosmopolitan do to justify different styles of production and different political economic orderings of resources. Um, and so we can ask what kinds of human migration and labor support these different regimes of production. Uh, we have a very strong comparative history of cities and of urban development, um, and that's where the critique of cosmopolitanism comes from. Uh, so why don't we have a comparable history of grasslands, of cosmopolitan grasslands? Uh, and so I have two provocations to end you with. They're, they're sort of airy, but bear with me. Um, the first question is, why do we make grasslands into grain depots, and should we do that? Uh, and the second question is, are there historical alternatives or contemporary alternatives? And I will leave it with that big open question that I think is really about the way that world uh, food systems remain put together in the 21st century, which, as I've tried to argue, has um, a very thorny and deep historical legacy. Thank you for uh, listening to me talk about my book. It was a pleasure.